0: 1 Kings chapter 19 and we're going to begin in verse 12 here um, <clears throat> here is Elijah um this is and and this should be familiar uh circumstance to us this is Elijah uh and he's he's sort of distraught and so he goes and he's hiding uh because Jezebel and and um husband, Ahab, are, are trying to find him. They want to kill him. So he's somewhat distraught. He's, here I am all alone. I'm kind of the lone ranger in Israel. I'm the only guy seeking the Lord, so to speak. That's how he feels. God corrects him about all of that. And so this is the instance where we have the earthquake, we have the fire, we have the wind. We have all of those powerful interactions that obviously are something that God is doing. Yet when we encounter, when he actually encounters God, it's in this gentle form. Something that is not causing harm, something that is very kind, something that is benign, as it were. He says in verse 12, and after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. Something gentle, an interaction where uh, God would minister to Elijah. He would encourage him. And it was so when Elijah heard it in verse 13, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice on him and said, Why, what doest thou here, Elijah? And God graciously ministers and very kindly ministers, yet very firmly. Don't misunderstand. Gentleness uh, can be firm. Kindness can be firm. And so here is God ministering to Elijah, but he doesn't show up in these other instances. He can. He absolutely can. Because one of his characteristics, uh, his gentleness, is not going to exclude... Uh, His wrath, for example, and as we see the wrath of God upon the world for sin described in the book of Revelation or elsewhere, it's it's very powerful, it's very dramatic. It would contain earthquakes, it would contain fire, would all of those things are there. Yet here is God, and this is how he interacts with you and I, and this is what he asks, or what he develops within us is this gentleness, this kindness, this not causing harm, even in God's persecution of sin. His execution of justice and the wrath that he may pour out, it is a useful and gracious, kind thing that he would judge sin. In Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, and he shall feed his flock like a shepherd, and he shall gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom, and they shall shall gently lead those that are with young. So throughout scripture, we find God described, and, and Jesus even picks up on that theme in John chapter 10 as he describes himself as the good shepherd. But we are the sheep, which is not necessarily a compliment. We're we're dumb, we need leading, we, we need instruction, we need protection, we need all of those things that, that sheep are encountered with. We need continual provision. And here is God as this good shepherd, and he's going to lead them, as we find in, in Psalm 23 by the still waters and the green pastures. He is providing all of our needs. He is gentle with us. And here he gathers those lambs in his arms and he carries them in his bosom. And as those who have young, he says, he, he gently leads those. He's not pushing hard. Uh, there, there isn't there isn't any risk to be done here. Though he is providing, though he's doing everything necessary, there is no uh, harm being done. It is a useful thing. And I want you to understand in eastern culture and not so much in western culture though i have seen it done in western culture shepherds in ancient times excuse me in eastern culture shepherds in ancient times when you had a wayward lamb they just break the leg it can't get away now right i mean that's that's your livelihood and and though it may be somewhat maimed in the end Uh, By breaking the leg, we have preserved its life. It's not wandering away where it gets into things it shouldn't be eating. It's not wandering away where it can't, uh, where where it can be predated upon. It, It just is taken care of. And not only that, but because it has all of these extra needs now, the shepherd would take care of it. He would keep it with him always, and he would tend to it, and he would minister to this leg that he had caused harm to for the purpose and the intent that usefulness may be brought out of this animal. And in the same way when God deals with us in gentleness there may be parts that feel harsh maybe our leg needs to be broken so we don't wander <laughs> we might need to be chastened of the lord but it's out of a uh, motivation of love and so here he is he carries those young lambs even especially the ones that need a little extra care with him in Matthew chapter 11 as we get into the new testament Matthew chapter 11 Verses twenty eight through thirty. Jesus himself speaking to his disciples, speaking to you and I, he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now I want I want to just briefly discuss a couple of things because God in his uh in the things that he may call us to and as his disciples we may experience things that are hard but that doesn't mean that the yoke or or the the what we are engaged in for the lord is grievous that it is a burden to do and there's a difference there god calls us to uh be his witnesses in the world around us, yet here we are at odds with the world, and so therefore we end up perhaps persecuted. We see this, obviously, in the New Testament church. But it was not a heavy burden to be born. There was not this fear and dread of, I may have to give my life for Christ. It was counted as an honor. And I realize that's sort of a heavy example, but there are those who would measure their service to Christ and what God would call them to simply by the standard that it's easy and they would go to this text as a proof of that yet throughout scripture here is paul who is shipwrecked stoned left for dead over and over in encountering hardship yet he would say that Jesus yoke was easy and his burden was light and the reason that it is easy that the reason that it is y- that it is light is because he is our yoke fellow You know, yoke is only is there to put upon two animals to bring them together, then they might take the load. And for you and I, as we are yoked with Christ in our relationship with him, and as we pull along, walking side by side, walking in the spirit, abiding in Christ, here we are reaping the benefit of sharing that load. We're not doing these things in and of ourselves, but we have the indwelling spirit within us, empowering us and giving us grace, the desire and the ability to do what God has called us to do so that it isn't hard and burdensome. There may be difficulty associated with it. There may be things that I would rather not go through, but that doesn't mean that it is hard. When we see Stephen, the first martyr, described in the New Testament, the first martyr of the early church, there and and he rejoices in the midst of his little, in my opinion, one of the greatest sermons and preaching of the gospel just before he's stoned to death. Knowing what is about to happen, he doesn't lament the fact. He doesn't regret anything. He simply preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he rejoices to see the Lord. And so it is with us. It is gentle. It is not causing harm. It is kind that we would be yoked with Christ. He bears the burden with us. And as we talked about in regard to the Holy Spirit, and there being those times when we may not even know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit itself would pray on our behalf. He's there bearing a burden that we couldn't have borne on our own. Now in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, Ephesians 2, 7, We find again that the Lord is kind, that he is gentle toward you and I. And he says, in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. His gentleness, his ability to show no harm in anything that he does, that he would minister everything on our behalf. That is what God has done in Christ. That is the purpose, as it were, in many respects, that God would, by the Holy Spirit, bear the fruit of kindness, gentleness through you and I. It is in many respects, as we find a characteristic of love in 1 Corinthians 13, it is a representation, representation of the love that He has for us. In Romans 5:8, God commended his love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is no harm, this is a useful expression. And we are benefiting, and I hope you realize and and understand the benefit that we are receiving from what God is showing us in his kindness, in his gentleness. Titus chapter 3, last example, and then we're going to get into what this looks like in your life and my life. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So Jesus Christ, the fullest expression of God's kindness, his gentleness toward mankind, toward you and I, was the salvation purchased for us through Jesus Christ. That is its fullest expression. There was no harm in any of it. What we were already bound and destined to was hell and separation and eternal punishment. Yet God did everything necessary that we might escape that very penalty. And he did so through his son and that special and singular mechanism. Not by any works. So the Holy Spirit bears in your life and in my life... The, he produces in us kindness, this gentle spirit that we might serve even to the sacrifice of ourselves. That there is no greater love than a man would lay down his life for his friends, as Jesus taught. It is not demonstrated in strife or argument. But it shares the truth in a gentle love, having its words filled with Grace. For you and I, this means that if gentleness is expressed in service, that should be a regular occupation that we put our hands to. We are useful instruments of the Lord. There are times that it's inconvenient. There are times that it's less pleasant. There are times that it requires commitment and long-term, long-suffering, as it were. Yet we have to realize that, number one, it's not harmful to us. It is not designed by God to be such a way that as we serve him, that it would be harmful. It may be hard, but those things don't equal harm. And secondly, as we serve, we must not cause harm. Now, notice I didn't say we shouldn't cause offense, that we shouldn't cause some discord, that that people may not be unhappy with us none of that is true sometimes and we know this from scripture jesus himself taught us that when we are encountered with truth with goodness and when the light shines into the darkness people react to it and they're either going to react to it in a positive way where it's receptive and we like the light shining in it calls us to repentance or it comes in and it's a condemnation and i don't want that in my life and get out of here it's going to be one or the other but that service is not going to cause harm and in the same way, we all experience that with Jesus Christ as the light shown into our life. And we experience conviction of the Holy Spirit. We either responded to it or we didn't. And for many of us, there was probably a period of time where we didn't respond to it. We chose to. I didn't like this shining in here. Yet that, that persistent conviction of the Spirit about the sin that we held and our need for Jesus Christ. Our interaction is going to be such that it pursue that it's in pursuit of those that we are serving as we finished up our sunday school uh our last sunday school one of the things that we purposed to do was choose a sphere of influence that we were going to engage in for the next year that we are going to strive to make a difference that we're going to be a light in that particular dark place whether it was family whether it was uh, uh, neighbors Wherever that sphere of influence was, that's where we were going to purpose ourselves. We were going to be of service to the Lord as he called us to those particular areas, trusting that he, in fact, had called us. And it takes a constant refocusing. And it takes a constant choosing that this is what I'm going to do. And it does take time. And it does take some effort. And it's not always convenient. God didn't call us any of those things. God called us to serve. And then he bears within us the fruit of gentleness, of kindness that would express itself in service. To the point that we would sacrifice time. To the point that we would sacrifice enjoyment for the benefit and the honor and the glory of God. Gentleness. God demonstrates it to us. We demonstrate it to others. Goodness is next. Goodness is the next fruit that we find here. Now, this is virtue. In other words, everything that God does is perfectly right. There is no moral ambiguity. There is no question. If he did it, it is absolutely right and correct. It was never wrong. There's no justification to question God. Now, you and I, as we obviously we realize that we are not going to be infallible in our expression of goodness. We were born and conceived in sin, Scripture tells us. It says that there is none righteous, no, not one. Yet in Jesus Christ, we are declared to be so. So we need to understand that what God has done is always correct, that he is right, that he is in fact good, unquestionably good. That there is no wrong, nor nor uncorrupted, no, no corrupted or moral ambiguity. He is infallible in all of those characteristics. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 31. Psalm 31. We're going to read verses 19 through 21. Here is David rejoicing. He says, how great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he hath showed me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. That here is God, and part of his expression of goodness to you and I is that he would protect us. As you see here that those who are his, uh, that those that fear him, they are protected, that they are in a fortified city, as it were. And we read in the New Testament that if God before us, who can be against us? Nothing can stand before him. Nothing can overcome him. And that is the reality of where we live. That's how we abide. His goodness in setting those who he has justified apart and protecting them. It is virtue. In Psalm 27, just a few pages back, Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14, says, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I had fainted. In other words, I would have been overcome. I would have not made it, unless I believed that I could see the goodness of God, his virtue, his uh, sure protection in this life. David's not looking for it simply in the next life. He's looking for it here. And we experience it here as well, that God is, in fact, good towards us. And that everything that he has done, though we see creation corrupted by sin, is, in fact, as he declared it in the very beginning, it is good. It is right. It is a witness and a testimony of who he is. In Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, Jesus was uh, sorry I don't remember the context immediately (laughs) but Jesus is called good that's that's the long short of it Mark chapter 10 verses 17 through 18 it says when he had gone forth into the way there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him good master what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life and Jesus said, said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. In other words, the only person who is good, who is infallible in morality, in in just, we, we look at people, we call them good people. And there are good people that exist. There is an effort being made to be virtuous. Yet it's always flawed, it is corrupted, and it is limited by the flesh. Yet here is God, and he is the only one who is unlimited by any flesh or any corruption and is always good. And Jesus asked this person, did you realize what you just said? There is only one good. You called me good master. Are you recognizing that I am God incarnate? In other words, that's what Jesus is asking him. And sometimes we read over that and we miss it. That's what Jesus is questioning. Do you realize what you just said? And he talks about the commandments and listen, you have to keep them perfectly and all, and on and on and on. And, and Jesus in verse 21, he says, uh, you lack one thing, right? This person says, I've kept the commandments flawlessly, which we know is complete lie. Because nobody has. Jesus says, you lack one thing, you need to sell everything that you have, give it to, to the poor, take up your cross and follow me. And this guy goes away and he mourns because he has great possession. He's a wealthy person. He doesn't want to divest himself of all of that. He doesn't want to give to the poor. Now, it isn't the act of giving. Jesus is effectively telling this man, you need to repent of the pride that you have associated with your wealth and turn to me, the giver of your wealth. It's not about what he has to do. It's not a work in the salvation, but he's telling him what he needs to repent from and what he needs to turn to. There's an acknowledgement and some understanding on this man's part that Jesus is good and that he's good on the same level in the same infallible way that God is good. In Romans chapter nine, and there's gonna be some context here that we're not gonna take time to delve into we developed it pretty fully as we study through the book of romans but effectively what what we have to understand from this passage is that for you and i who are the created thing we don't get to tell the creator what is good and and, and bad what is right and wrong that he in fact is sovereign that he stands there incorruptible and infallible in everything that he has declared and so in romans chapter 9 verse 20 he says nay But, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, What hast thou made me? Why hast thou made me thus? Has not the potter power over the clay in the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? In other words, cannot God himself make one vessel that would be the fine china that we bring out that has a particular use and another that has a different particular use, It's utilitarian. It's not the fine china. It's the everyday stuff. It's what we go to Walmart and buy so that when our kids break it, we don't feel bad and they don't have to feel bad and we can afford to replace it, right? Both have a purpose and a use. Both can be useful and minister to God, but God in his sovereignty gets to make that decision. Who are we, the created thing that says, I don't want to be utilitarian, where I want to be fine China. That's calling the goodness of God into question. I know better than you. I should set up what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. In my fallibility, in my corrupted, sin-filled flesh, I should decide. We don't have that luxury or that pleasure. So within you and I, we have the reality that is the Holy Spirit bears the fruit of goodness within our life. It is based upon the declaration of God himself that we are righteous, that we are justified, that we are made like we had never sinned. And the outward expression of that, it comes about how we would live as all of these fruits do. In James chapter two, uh, if we turn there, there are those who would, uh, even, even Martin Luther had problems with the book of James, because in his mind, there was a conflict with grace, which I think Martin Luther was wrong about. I think that this uh, description of what is happening in James is a result of the grace that has been sown in our lives and i think that's exactly what the book teaches and as we study through james and that's what we determine but james chapter two beginning in verse 21 was not abraham our father justified by works when he had offered isaac his son upon the altar in other words all he is saying and it wasn't that he was justified by the work that he did but his faith was proved in other words, what was inside had changed to the, to the to the degree that he was willing to give his only son. That he would lay down in obedience, in faith, absolute faith in God, that even if he had to raise him from the dead, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, that that would be how he did it. That the promises that God had made to bless all nations, to redeem mankind through the lineage of Isaac would be fulfilled. So as a result of that, he was justified. He was proven to be justified, having a change of heart and absolute faith in God by his outward action. Now in verses 24 through 25, you see then how that by works a man is justified, that he is is proven to be born again and not by faith only. Likewise also was Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Here are the nation of Israel coming in to occupy this land, to take it over. Everyone within Jericho is terrified. These two spies come in. Rahab helps them. And all she has is their simple assurance, two guys. Listen, if you hang the red cord, the scarlet thread out your window, when we see that, we won't attack you and your family. Whoever's there will be preserved. She had to trust. She had to have faith that they would deliver upon their word. And ultimately, her faith and trust was not in their goodness. Her her faith and trust was in the goodness of God that he would honor all that he had said through them. And what do we find? We find that Rahab was there, that, that as an exhibit of her faith, we find her in Hebrews chapter 11. We find her in the lineage of Christ. The outward expression of the goodness that God has put within us is how we live. In First Thessalonians chapter five, First Thessalonians chapter five, verse twenty two, tells you and I, in regard to how we live, it says, abstain from all appearance of evil. Evil being the opposite of goodness. Evil being the manifestation of corruptness and sin within us, yet here is goodness that we are to be expressing, that the Holy Spirit will manifest through us. We abstain from all appearance of evil. Now, that's a choice. That's not what I can get away with. That's not what I intend. I didn't mean to make people think that about me. That's that I would abstain from the appearance of it, that I am not going to stumble anybody by what I do. That's a big difference. I'm going to love others as I love myself, to the extent that I would withdraw myself and not do that thing that would confuse them. We as believers have great liberty in Christ. We could do this, we could do that. Yet as the Holy Spirit bears fruit within us, the fruit of goodness, we are going to abstain from certain things so that we don't sow confusion. It's not about earning righteousness or maintaining righteousness. It's simply an honoring of God and the way we conduct ourselves. And goodness is manifest in the way that we live. Albert, excuse me, Adam Clark, commentator from hundreds of years ago, wrote this. He says that, uh, the spirit produces within us a perpetual desire not only to abstain from every appearance of evil but to do good to the bodies and souls of men to the utmost of our ability but all this must spring from a good heart a pure a heart purified by the spirit of god we can't do this in and of ourselves we are not good and while we may manifest things in ourselves we can participate we can do good things We can only do it in the capacity that God has given us the Spirit and brought about within you and I the fruit of goodness, of virtue. And by faith, when we take up our cross daily and we follow Christ, which in many respects is walking in the Spirit, is choosing to abide with Christ, it means that I'm going to lay down my life and and some of the liberty, quote-unquote, that I would have in Christ that I'm not going to use my liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but I'm going to show love to those who are around me. Next, we have faith. Faith. Now, this word does not mean within you and I that we are exhibiting faith. Now, don't get me wrong. The Spirit is going to bring about within us faith. I believe that to be true, that we would know how to trust God. But what this word literally means in this is trustworthiness, faithfulness. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6, let me read it to you. Proverbs 20, verse 6. There is a lament, there is a mourning, as it were. It says, most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness. We've all seen that. We've experienced it. We may have even done it. but a faithful man who can find. In other words, I'm going to tell you about my goodness. Just as James would say, I'm going to tell you about my faith, but I'm going to show you my faith by my works. I'm going to show you, rather than tell you how trustworthy I am, how faithful I might be, whether it's as an employee or as a husband or as a wife or how, whatever context it may be in. Instead of just tell you about it, I'm going to show you by the way that I live. Everyone is quick to talk about. Talk is cheap, right? That's what we say. Talk is cheap. Show me. And there's this lament and this this grief, as it were, at the fact that it is hard to find a faithful man. Somebody who would be trustworthy. Who I can count on. That's going to show up when they say they're going to show up. How many times have you gone to help people move and you know they've got all this help lined up and it's just you and the guy (laughs) because nobody shows up they said they were going to be there but it's hard and really we didn't want to do it nobody likes moving nobody does but we love people and so we serve them right am i trustworthy is does my yes mean yes and does my no mean no in proverbs chapter 27 proverbs 27 verses five through six Open rebuke is better than secret love. And faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes we wouldn't account faithfulness in that way. But somebody who is trustworthy, somebody who is actually faithful... As the Spirit bears this fruit within you and I, God was faithful enough to show us our need for Christ. And he did so in many, many ways and without any uh, wiggle room so that here we are, we're pinned down by it and we are forced to make a choice to accept or to reject him. And for you and I, and we'll develop this further as we get into chapter 6 because Paul does develop it further, but for you and I who are going to be faithful people, we're going to tell the truth. We're going to be that accountability for the body of Christ, for those that are near and dear to us, for those that we love to the extent that we'll tell them the hard things. I would rather be a faithful friend than a a deceitful enemy that it's all sugar and emptiness. We tend to be fickle in our dealings with each other, here today and on tomorrow. But unless our interests are served, or unless it's easy, we tend to we tend towards unfaithfulness, to not be trustworthy. We don't endure the burden of others, nor can we be trusted to speak truth to them in love. The Holy Spirit brings about in us a desire and a willingness and extends to us the grace to be trustworthy. That we'd be willing to show up in word and in deed. We see the trustworthiness of God that he is faithful all the time. In 2 Peter 3 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but his long suffering to us We're not willing that any should perish. Or there are those that will point to those oftentimes who are outside of the body of Christ. Here it is, all this delay. There were all these promises that God was going to show up, that Jesus would return, all these things. Yet, where is it? And that's exactly the context of 2 Peter chapter 3. And he begins his defense of that very topic by saying, God is not slack. He's not forgetful. He's not negligent of the promises that he made. He is trustworthy. The motivation and the reason is his long suffering, his willingness that no one would perish. Even you who doubt him. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Proto-Evangelion, the first pronunciation by God himself of the Redeemer that will deliver mankind from the consequence and the effect of sin. And here is God fulfilling it. We see the total picture because we see Jesus Christ. We have the clear description of what he has done. He was faithful. Did it take time? From our perspective, yes, thousands of years. but he fulfilled that promise and he didn't restrain anybody who before the promise was fulfilled from participating in the promise like Abraham, whose faith was counted to him as righteousness. So too our faith is counted to us as righteousness. That's how we are justified. God fulfilled his promise and he's going to continue to fill it until it's completely done everything that we read that is yet unfulfilled in Scripture will be accomplished. In Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verse 75, says, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness has afflicted me. Here's again another instance where we may experience hardship or leanness or persecution or anything that we may perceive as bad yet we find that it is very much the faithfulness of God to have afflicted us that he and his love and concern for you and I even if he didn't in fact send it he would redeem it for our best and if he did in fact send it we know that it is for our very best for all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. For good. In 2 Timothy chapter one, Second Timothy chapter 1, Paul would here celebrate and praise the Lord for his faithfulness. 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things, him being, uh, he's referring to verse 11, where he's appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher to the Gentiles. That is the origin and the basis for Paul's persecution. Whether it's by Gentiles or whether it's by Jews, that's why he is suffering. But he goes on, for this cause, uh, for because of the calling that God has put upon me, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. I'm not withdrawing. I'm not, a, I'm not pulling any punches, as it were, in my presentation. I'm not pulling any punches in the way that I conduct myself or the things that I stand for or stand against. For I know whom I have believed. There's an absolute certainty there. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Here is Paul who has given his entire life, just as you and I have given our life to Christ. And hopefully, uh, as we pick up that cross daily, we put our life on the altar to be a living sacrifice so that we might honor him in what we do, in how we live, in the way that we conduct ourselves. That we would seek first his kingdom and his glory. Paul says, I am convinced, I am absolutely sure that him who is faithful, who is trustworthy, I have given him everything knowing that he won't lose it, that he can't lose it. And then no one is able to take it from him. As I give God my life, my reputation, my desires, whatever it may be as a useful instrument to him. I know that it's going to turn out just fine. I don't have any worries. I don't have any concern that God is in fact faithful. That I can trust him with everything that I've given him. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. Hebrews 7, 26. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. I don't think that's the right. Maybe it is. Hold on. Because Philippians 1, 6 in my notes are it's on the same line, which means that one mean, needs the other. So let me turn to Philippians, Philippians one six. Sorry, I don't remember what it says. It says, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't I don't remember the connection, nor do I have it in my notes. I just figured it must be clear. one six? We do know and we are confident, we are absolutely certain that what we have given to Christ, he will preserve, and that because he has started a work within us, that he has saved us, that we are born again, as Ephesians 2:10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, unto good works which he's before ordained, that we should walk in them, that he will continue to perform that work within you and I. Until it is finished. Until Christ returns, or till we return to Christ. We don't return to Christ. Scratch that. That will confuse people. Or until we go to be with Christ, there's a better way to say that. He will perform it until the day of Jesus. Without any question, without any confusion, faithfulness. To Jesus Christ is in proportion to the faith that we have in him. Now, and what I mean by that is that as the Holy Spirit bears the fruit of faithfulness within us, of trustworthiness. worthiness, it demands of you and I trust in him. And the greater faith that I have in the Lord, the greater faithfulness I will have. Because I'm trusting more and more that he will perform what he has promised to perform. I'm trusting more and more that he is able to keep that which I have given him. Therefore, because I've seen it, because I've tasted it, because I've witnessed it, I am willing to give God everything and not withhold anything. And that becomes more true tomorrow than it is today because as we see his trustworthiness, right? same way that we experience, say you have a whole group of employees. The ones who demonstrate trustworthiness, that I I can give them a task and they will fulfill it, they will do it well, they'll do it thoroughly, are the ones that I end up trusting more to. And our experience with the Lord is the same. At the moment that we put faith in Jesus Christ, we believe that we could trust Him with our eternity. Because He had provided everything necessary to save us and redeem us from the effects of sin. And the longer we walk with him, as we witness his faithfulness, his trustworthiness in this life, the more we are willing to give him of our very life and trust him with our life and not just our eternal life. Our faithfulness to him, our trustworthiness with God is in proportion to the faith that we have in him. And so as the Holy Spirit bears fruit within us, for him to develop, faithfulness in us he will develop faith as well it'll be twofold i trust that the word of god and he's revealed to me how i ought to raise my children now i may have interpreted things and done things wrong in the past in my limited understanding but as i've grown in that as the holy spirit is right we continue to raise children but i trust that god has told me how to raise my children so i'm going to raise them that way I'm going to do so in accordance with the word of God. And the longer I've been raising children, the more that I believe that to be true. Because over and over, he proves himself faithful. He proves himself trustworthy. He knows, in fact, everything that he told me to do. And it's all correct and right. And that all the books that I may have read, you know, you read a lot of parenting books. You've never been a parent before. You don't know what you're doing. And, You know, for the first two or three, you probably still don't know what you're doing. (laughs) But but the Lord knows what he's doing. The Lord knows what he's doing. And he's given us counsel in his word. And as we walk with him, as we bear the fruit uh, of the spirit, as he, by his grace, interacts in our lives and preserves our children from all kinds of harm and mistake that we would have caused. I can trust him more with my younger children because he has been faithful. That's all I'm saying. I've said that like three ways now. Hopefully we get it. Let's move on to the next one. Meekness. Meekness is the next fruit that we find here. Uh, The cliche that we find is that weakness, meekness is not weakness, right? That's self-restraint. So this is literally calmness, evenness of composure, this is something that we naturally develop over time anyway. And, and, and I can't say that necessarily because not everybody does. Okay, but this is calmness. This is an evenness of composure. Uh, we interpret that as being weak. Okay, the meek man, by reason of his composure, is not easily provoked. And it is, it is the that very quality that is viewed as weak. That he's willing to turn the other cheek. That he chooses not to go toe-to-toe with you, even if he could. His restraint of temper at wrong, his humility, his calmness under pressure are all desirable traits. Something that that I have observed because those who, uh, as an example, John Lovell uh, is the Warrior Poet Society. He's he's a he's a believer. He's a homeschooling dad. He's got great resources. Uh, he's he was, he's ex special forces. I don't remember what branch he was in. I apologize. But so he does like ministry. This is how we minister to men. But he also does, this is how we shoot guns really well. You know, this is how you develop a home defense plan. He does both. And it's kind of a fun mix. But uh, oh, anyway, people who are from that background, these special forces background, those kinds of things, you'll notice that they are very meek. They could destroy you with a flick of their pinky, and they don't. Right? I mean, they, they don't. He said the best fight that you can be in is the one that you didn't get in, and that's why he calls it the warrior post. We should be able by our words and those things. He said that's our first line of defense. Second line of defense is hard and heavy. You know that's the, that's what he's. You know, I kind of enjoy it. All right, I, there you go, but. That's often very much the case. He says the quietest guy in the room is the guy you need to worry about. He says he's probably the most prepared. And, And you hear that in other places. That's just a common theme. Those guys who know those guys, they say that's the characteristic that they bear, that is meekness. And I realize that's a very worldly example, but I think that we wrap our heads around that a little more because here is God in his infiniteness who literally could destroy us with less than a flick of the pinky and doesn't. Genesis chapter three, verse 21. Here we have Adam and Eve and and the fall has just happened. We have the proclamation of the gospel in, in verse 15. And in this verse, verse 21, where God is completely justified because he told him in the day that you eat of the fruit thereof that I told you not to eat, you'll die. That is the just punishment. Yet in verse 21, what does God do? He makes them coats of skins. He sheds blood on their behalf, and he gives them a covering. Giving us the very first illustration of how we are going to be justified, how we will be clothed in some righteousness that is not our own. God was meek in his dealing with mankind. Not only was it merciful, it was meek. His power was restrained. He was calm. He was even of composure in his interaction with Adam and Eve. In Isaiah chapter 53, and if we go turn there with me, because all throughout Isaiah 53 is this description of Jesus Christ as he is going to go to the cross. Not only his characteristics, but what he is accomplishing is described in Isaiah 56. Excuse me, Isaiah 53. Verse six, for example, all we like sheep have gone astray, but he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That here is Jesus Christ being our substitute, But if we read through this entire chapter, which is only 12 verses, we're not going to read all of it. But for example, uh, we see that, uh, let's see, which one was it? Oh, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. We find this as a description of Jesus Christ. So therefore, if we go to the New Testament, we see Jesus' interaction with those who would persecute him, who would put him on the cross. We see this meekness in the example. Turns me to Matthew chapter 26. Now, Matthew chapter 26 is interesting because here we have Peter, who is less than meek. Um, as they come to take Jesus pulling his sword out and cutting off the high priest, the, the servant of the high priest's ear. I mean, he's, he's toe-to-toe with you. He is not turning the other cheek. Now, now this is obviously in defense of Christ. He sees a thing, a problem that he's going to defend. Like, you can't fault him too hard. But Jesus responds to this. And he says in verses 52 through 54, Matthew 26, Put, a, put up again thy sword into his place. For all that they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou not, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then shall the scripture be fulfilled that this, that thus it must be? Listen, Jesus says, Peter, we don't need your sword. I can pray for legions and legions and legions of angels. One of which, one angel himself would be plenty to take care of. This mob here that came to get me. Peter, I have all power. Yet I'm going to restrain myself because this is what needs to happen. This is the will of God. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, we have this description of Jesus Christ. tells us first, let this mind be in you which also was in Christ. 2 Peter, uh, beginning in verse 2, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He is God in the flesh. We understand that he is incarnate. He is Emmanuel, God with us. John 1, 14, here, the, the word took on flesh. He was clearly God and he dwelt among us. This is who he's talking about. He is equal with God. But when Jesus came to earth, he didn't come to earth with all the glory and regalia, all of the celebration, the pomp and circumstance that he would have had. No, we have this description here. He made himself in verse 7 of no reputation. In Isaiah 53, you would say that there would be no form nor comeliness that we would look upon him. There was nothing that would distinguish him as king of kings and lord of lords, as creator of the universe, as the redeemer. There would be nothing that would set him apart that would make people look and say, hey, this is the guy. Jesus took himself of no reputation. He was the son of a carpenter on the wrong side of the tracks, as it were, in Nazareth. And he took upon him the form of a servant who was made in the likeness of men, a little lower than the angels. He brought himself, he condescended to our estate. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ was not weak. He willingly went to the cross. He restrained himself, and he remained even of composure. He remained calm. He chose to not open his mouth, to not revile when reviled, to not by the snap of his fingers call down legions of angels to destroy his enemies and occupy earth. Why? So that he might save you and I, that he might lay down his life for those who would go to the cross who would hang him there, for people like Saul who would hold the coats of those who would stone the saints in first Peter chapter two first Peter two twenty one through twenty four for even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile fine in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who in his own self bare our sin in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Here we are, as disciples of Christ, As the Holy Spirit moves within us, developing and producing the fruit of meekness. We are the children of God. We are heirs according to the promise and co-heirs with Christ. He is our Father. No one can stand against us because we are his children. We stand in many respects with the same authority and the same power that Christ had. Now, we're not equal in power. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But what I am trying to point out is the status and the position that we enjoy in that relationship with our creator. And we would be like the like James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who would say, Listen, Jesus, let's just call down fire from heaven and we'll consume all your enemies. That, that would be us, apart from the fruit of the Spirit bringing about meekness within us. And we would not use the liberty that we have as an occasion to the flesh, but that we would serve, that we would remain calm and composed, that we would turn the other cheek as Jesus commanded us. Now, listen, if you hurt my family, I'm not turning the other cheek. I am called to defend my family, and I can back that up biblically, so you're going down. But if you hit me, fine. Uh, maybe, that's a, maybe that's too fine a line in the sand, but that's where I've drawn it for myself. The Lord convict me if I'm wrong. But we understand the point, don't we? Christ laid down everything for us. Though he could have done something differently. In Romans, last reference here, Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. Verses 17 through 21. This is the admonition that we have. This is the... The meekness and how we might mimic it, how we might develop it, how we participate in what the Holy Spirit is bringing about in us. Recompense, in other words, repay nobody, evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay saith the lord therefore if thine enemy hunger feed him if he thirst give him drink for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head be not overcome of evil but overcome evil with good it's going to demand some composure of on our part some meekness some restraint and calmness And we add to that this last fruit of the spirit that we find born within us, temperance, which literally means self-control. There was, back during Prohibition, the temperance movement. And and so there are those who will interpret this as being temperance, is is removing ourselves from alcohol. that is, Well, that may be a manifestation of it. That is not all that it means by any means. This is self-control. And I realize that meekness and self-control are going to sound very similar, but... They're not the same thing. This is moderation in thought, word, or action. Temperance would be best understood, and I think it's best understood uh, in the way that it's described by Paul in 1 Corinthians. So let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9. Verses 24 through 27. Now, Paul is using a metaphor here, obviously, because he that's how often do we find metaphors in Scripture. But this is this is what he says, beginning in verse 20, 24. Know you not that they which run in a race run all, but one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain. Now, listen, what we take away from this, that it's fine to win. right? <laughs> you know, we tell people all the time, oh, well, it's not about whether we win or lose. It's about whether we have fun. And that is true. I mean, the most, but listen, play to win, okay? When we go to play Ultimate Frisbee tonight, we're all celebrating every goal for both teams. Hey, good job. Keep up the good work. But listen, if my team wins, it's just a little bit funner. You know, it's just it just is. It's okay to play the win. We should be giving our best, in other words, to what we're doing. And so here we are. This is a metaphor about our service to Christ, about our self-control that we would engage in so that we might honor the Lord in what we do. And he says, run that you may win. Everyone's going to run. Only one's going to receive the prize. There can only be one winner. Right? Participation prizes and and things like that, we should just do away with them. Contrary to the word of God. And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate or self-controlled in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible crown, right? You see these guys who train and train and train. If the, I'm going to be the master of whatever I'm doing. Now, the only person that I've ever known that's ever competed at a high level and those kinds of things is Mike Riddle. It's the only person that I know. And I, and I realize we've all encountered him in his 70s. What you probably don't know is that in his 70s, he's like number two in the nation in the javelin in his age group, I mean, because, you know, you don't throw as far when you're 70s when you did when you were 25, but but back in the day when he was a national track champion, he's like Mike. He teases about it. He says, "Listen, I I beat Bruce Jenner back when he was Bruce Jenner. You know, he's, <laughs> he he was a national track champion. He didn't just get second and third. He won all of it. And when you talk to Mike about training, because he has Grandkids who he is training in track and field events and has a very particular method, and he knows exactly when they should peak. And it's interesting because he's like, they could be destroying everybody now, but they would lose later. He says, But if we wait until they're in college or just before college, so that they're getting all the scholarships, and that's exactly what's happening. And so he helps them to train the way that he trained. And when he talks about his training when he was in those days, it's a very Self controlled, very disciplined. There is no, I don't feel like it today. I am striving for mastery. And so every single day, I'm going to engage in these things. And if you talk to Leslie, Mike's wife, about it, she says, I knew when Mike was sick because he wouldn't train. And he only wouldn't train if he couldn't train. You know, he was the typical guy. And Mike's like, I had every muscle. He said, I could lower my heart rate while I was running. And I'm like, how is that even physically possible? It's possible. It is, but he had trained himself to the degree. And I'm like, and so I did some research and it is possible. And there are runners that can very much do it and it's documented. And I'm like, okay, well, I take it all back. He was striving for mastery. And so there was no compromise in the preparation He was self-controlled in all things, in everything that he did. If there are those who are willing to do that for a corruptible crown, for what celebration and what recognition we may have in this life, all the more for you and I who are running for an incorruptible crown, something in the next life, the reward that we might hold there. Verse 27, he says, I keep under, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be cast away. For Paul, there is no expression that should be outside of what God has called him to do. That is an inappropriate expression. That that he would restrain himself and deal in meekness, that he would deal in service, that he would deal in all temperance and self-control for the honor and glory of God, so that he might be recognized by the world around him. And we see God, and and in the utmost picture of self-control and restraint, his, quote-unquote, his emotions, if if we put God into a human perspective for sake of understanding, don't do that, but that's where we're at, right? His emotions, there was nothing that would get the better of him. God is not easily provoked. And when Scripture does record any... Passionate action; uh, it, it is the result of God's just nature, and it does not exhibit a, a lack of temperance, but it does exhibit a disdain and uh, of sin and the hope of redemption. In Genesis chapter six, God says that it repents me; I, I, I it repents me that I created man because of the multitude of sins. And we read there that it, that all imagination of the thoughts of the heart is always evil continually. So what does he do? He says, I'm I'm not always going to strive with man. My justice is going to have to be satisfied. And we look at it and we say, well, how can it be self-controlled that God would wipe out everybody on the entire planet? Yet it was self-controlled. For us to question, it would be for us to question his goodness. It was right that he would do it. It was appropriate that he did it. Not only that, but he subjected it the same in hope. And with the eye toward redemption, he saved eight and gave us illustration after illustration of how he was going to redeem all of mankind through Noah and his family. Disciples of Jesus Christ must grow in temperance. We don't strive against the Spirit and His work of producing this within us. Temperance is required in the pursuit of mastery in the Christian life. And without it, we will not restrain the works of the flesh. We won't choose to do that. It involves a choice to walk in the Spirit and to not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Yet the Holy Spirit will supernaturally bear the fruit of self control, of restraint, of temperance within you and me. In Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, verse 14. this is in many respects what is what is demanded or what is required or what the spirit bears within us as he brings about the fruit of temperance he says but put ye on the lord jesus christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof if temperance is understood as Moderation is restraint, self control in thought, word, or action. We're going to remove all of those things that would be a temptation to sin in thought, in word, or in action. That I might represent Christ to the world around me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you'll turn there with me. We're going to begin toward the end here in verse 31. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. No matter what we're doing, we're striving for mastery in the Christian life, in representation of him, in bringing him honor and glory, in sharing of the gospel, in in reaping the blessings that we incur as his disciples on all fronts. Whatever we do, we do. For the honor of God. Now, jump with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. The way that we grow in temperance, as it were, is to understand that verse 3 that though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. In other words, that we would diligently pursue, that we would strive after mastery to think about everything the way that God thinks about it. That if it's sin, we think of it as sin. That if it's righteous, we think of it as righteous. That we understand how God perceives all the things that we encounter in this life. And that we would view them and that we would practice them in the same way that he would. I may have to exercise self-control and that this is the way I would want to do it. This is the way I must do it for Christ. Temperance. Not our natural and inclination. Yet here the spirit bears the fruit, all of these fruit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. He brings all of them about within us as these characteristics of God that we might be those ambassadors that would represent him to the world around us. And that we might do so accurately and rightly we participate in, we mortify those things that would be contrary to, and we put on those things that are consistent with. Yet here in a supernatural way above and beyond anything that we could manufacture, God will bring these fruits to pass in our life. He says that there is no law against any of these. There's no law that would prohibit you and I from love or joy or peace or long-suffering. as we close this morning in our study of Galatians chapter five, period. He says in verse 24, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Now this word that is here translated walk in verse 25, let us walk in the spirit. It's a different word than is used in verse 16. It says walk in the spirit. This word means to it means to keep rank or to walk in file. Just like we would have soldiers walk in line, that they would operate, that they would look and do in a certain way. There's a statement here regarding the boot camp of the Christian life. Now, I've had the opportunity a long time ago, I went to the Marine, had a friend graduating from the Marine Corps. And so I went to his graduation and went to the Marine Recruiting Depot in San Diego. That's where they build Marines. And they build them. The first thing that happens, so one of the things that they take and they show you, I mean, well, the first thing that happened for me is that I walked across the parade route and I got yelled at. I mean, that is sacred ground. You don't even get to walk there until you graduate. That's on graduation day is the first time your feet hit the parade ground. And I, you know, well, geez, I got to walk all the way around this massive concrete. I'm just going to go cross it. And there are people keep from everywhere to yell at me. <laughs> and they know how to yell. It's like, okay, we understand that this is to be respected. But the first thing that they took and they showed us is because on the first day you get your hair cut. So everybody's got the same haircut. We all look the same. And then there's this these massive concrete areas with yellow painted feet. And then you just stand there for hours on end with your feet in these footprints so that you know exactly how to stand at attention, how to, how to stand whenever you're not at attention, whatever that's called, I can't remember, right? At ease, you your feet are always the same. They're developing within you by, and literally your first, day two three days all you do is stand there and it's hot and it's sunny and it's miserable and they stand there but boot camp is designed to break you down and then to build you back up in a certain image you're not an individual anymore you're part of this team and you're a marine on this team and so therefore you're going to stand look operate think like a Marine, and that's the way that they build them back up. Every branch of the military does the same thing. And they do so that so that there is specific characteristics born through that unit, through those individuals. While you're standing there at attention, the other thing that happens is that you're given your guidebook, your book of knowledge. I heard, I've heard it called both, but it's basically the history and everything you need to know as a Marine. And this is going to be the indoctrination process, so to speak. I mean, it's, it, there's a lot of history in this book, and it's really quite an interesting book. You can go buy them. They're available. You can purchase them. You'll learn about battles that were won. You'll learn about the the reasons they were won, the political environment around it. Pretty well-rounded knowledge. Good stuff but you're expected to know this. And so a good part of your boot camp is them just shouting questions at you and you have to give the right answer. And it's not just the right answer, it's the right answer with exactly the right words, right? Because we're all gonna give the same answer. We're thinking the same way. So we build you down, we give you this book that tells you all the information and the way you should think, the way you should respond, the way you should act, how you understand the life that you are now in. Sounds familiar to the Christian life, isn't it? That here, as we live as rank-and-file members of the body of Christ, those who would walk and stand and act and speak and look like Jesus Christ to the world around us, that we have been given everything necessary that we might do so. Not only that, but we have a commander who is ever-present with us, bringing about within us characteristics that he desires to be in us. In Romans chapter 8, and we are so close to done, Romans chapter 8. And you know, after this, there's only one more chapter. Romans chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. And what we understand here is that when we were under the law of sin and death, there was a way that we conducted ourselves in a way that we lived and it was contrary to the law that we now live under, the spirit of life in Christ. That we submit ourselves, that we walk in obedience to. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if we take this walking in the Spirit on both fronts, using both terms to help us understand what our Christian life looks like, not only do we act in faith to habituate ourselves to make it, this is the way I would naturally respond, walking in the Spirit. Not only do we act in faith to habituate ourselves in accordance to the fruit born within us, in other words, that I would live and participate in that sanctificatory process but that I would purpose to submit to the fruit that is being produced within me. That I wouldn't stifle it, that I wouldn't pull it off the vine before it would come to maturity. I would be submitted to it. I would learn to stand with my feet such and such, that I would learn what God has said to me, that I might not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is what the fruit This is what the Spirit bears within us. This is what he brings to pass in your life and in my life. It is a training process. Something that he is doing through us to mold us into disciples of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to be in your word. For the instruction that, Lord, you give us clearly. And as we've studied through the fruit of the Spirit, Lord, I pray that it would be within each one of us characteristic that it would become a normal mode of operation that lord on both fronts we would walk in the spirit we praise you lord that you bring about within us things that we could never bring about in and of ourselves in a way that is clear and representative of who you are and god by your grace i pray that we would be receptive and submitted to those things that you're doing in us and through us We thank you, and as we have opportunity now to praise you, we pray, uh, Lord, I ask that you would be honored, that it would be the offering of our hearts, that, Lord, we would bow ourselves, as it were, to honor you through the, the singing and the adoration and the worship of all that you've done and who you are. We give thanks now, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.